Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Welcome. Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Last week I had forgotten to congratulate Tony on the completion of the District of Wonders' successful Kickstarter project. Aside from that, children of the night, I really don't have any pertinent news or personal thoughts about stories, books, or movies, so let's just dive on in. We have two stories for you this evening. First up will come from Gwendolyn Keist, a horror and fantasy writer based in Pennsylvania. Her fiction has appeared in anthologies including Strangely Funny 2 and Whispers from the Past, Fright and Fear, as well as online at The Siren's Call, Dance Macabre, and Sanitarium Magazine, among others. You can find her at GwendolynKeist.com and on Twitter at Gwendolyn Keist. Listen with me now to Gwendolyn Keist's Black Door. As a kid, I thought everyone's house had a black front door with scratch marks on it. Maybe not black but at least the remnants of four-inch claws etching their melody into the woodwork. 
but living on a long, otherwise abandoned road afforded few opportunities to test my theory. As it turns out, I was wrong anyhow. Only our house had that door. Or those marks. Every spring, my daddy would emboss the door with a fresh coat of midnight. I never understood why. Within a week or two, the first white lines of the season emerged. The tiny marks started at the base and by fall reached as high as the doorknob. Yet whenever I'd ask Mama what scratched at our door, she'd just tell me to hush. Much to my dismay, my older sister Ray found out before me, but she was no more help than Mama. Our family's real special, Tom, she said any time I yanked on the bottom of her hand-me-down flannel and demanded to know about the door. Right after my seventh birthday, we embarked on our semi-annual trip to the general store. Our weathered paint horse died the previous November, so Daddy traded his splintered wagon for a rusted truck. Even with the upgraded transportation, the venture took nearly an hour one way. Upon arriving at the well-stocked shack, I pulled away from Mama and examined the row of glass jars filled with rock candy. The overhead light cast a mesmerizing white glint off the brown sugar. But the saccharine mosaic amused me for only a moment before the squeak of old shoes inched closer and an accompanying shadow hovered over the jars. "'You go to school?' a voice said in a sing-song. I shook my head, though I refused to move my gaze from the mountain of sweets and sticks tumbling over one another. I guess the speaker was about my age. "'Why not?' he said. "'Mama teaches us at home.' "'I wish my mama taught me at home,' he kicked a divot in the wood. "'Where you live?' I pointed toward the road. "'Well, I figured that,' another stepped toward me. How far? With unsteady knees, I stood and glared into the interloper's grimy face. Pretty far. His lips contorted. Where's that? I shrugged. Where the road ends, or close to the end anyhow. Slack-jawed, he gaped at me like I shared kin with circus folk. My daddy told me stories about that area. He said there are monsters out there. An army of them. Well, I ain't never seen anything like that, I said. Your daddy must be a liar. His foot stamped on the floorboard. The motion shook sharp edges of rock candy against the glass. He ain't no liar. Tom, my mama said at the end of the aisle, time to go. I started after her, but at the last moment, I turned back to the youthful malcontent. Your daddy is a liar. He yelled something after me, but I didn't hear him, and I was glad. On the drive home, I curled up next to Ray as she hummed a light song, hopelessly out of tune. Still, I worried the kid with the soiled mug might be right. Almost every evening, my dreams overflowed with the sobs of shotguns, and I realized the gunfire wasn't confined to my imagination. Worse yet, the scuffle came not from our acres of land or from the planks on the porch, but from within the house. I couldn't make sense of why Mama or Daddy or Ray would have need to unload bullets inside, and though I slept through the ruckus some nights... The times when the metallic thunder shook me awake seemed to ensue endlessly. Sometimes, during a lull, I recognized their voices. "'Why don't they go around back or use the windows?' Ray said one evening. "'They're stuck in a pattern,' Mama said. "'They only want the front door.' Daddy growled a comment, and shots rattled through the walls again. Each morning, however, when I crept down the stairs after dawn, the house managed to maintain its routine." Daddy would already be toiling in the field, and Ray would loiter near the stove, preparing a pail of slop she called breakfast. For years, she stood too short to reach all the knobs and handles, 
so she'd drag a chair from the table and boost herself to a more respectable height. For as much ingenuity as she invested, it sure didn't help her cooking. Outside, Mama would fancy up the yard, and I always felt a little sad the lonely road kept anyone from seeing her hard work. With beautiful and deliberate pride, she swept the decrepit porch boards, cleaning the dirt driveway of wayward debris, and finished with a small plot of grass just in front of the house. Much like our scratched-up front door, I figured everyone's mama took a broom to the overgrown yard each day before noon. It was the most natural thing in the world watching her work through cracked picture windows. Sometimes she whistled a nothing tune, other times she sang, and the mornings when she crooned her elegies were my favorite. Crouched over two fried eggs and raised invariably burnt toast, I listened to the lilt of Mama's soprano. Will is waiting, perish in the darkness, forlorn fighting, evermore so heartless. I didn't know what the lyrics meant, but I loved them more for the mystery. After the front yard, Mama would return to the kitchen and clean Ray's mess, which never disappointed in its splendor. Yet the moment she set the rag on the stove, my stomach roiled on itself. That meant Mama needed me to vacate the breakfast table. The rest of my family would disappear into the day's routine where they neither needed nor wanted my help, leaving me alone for hours at a stretch. Mama and Daddy planned only on Ray, and while no one ever said so, I was surplus. There was always something to be done around the farm, but I wasn't very good at any of it. I tried to toil in the field, but Daddy usually grumbled that I trampled more plants than I tended. I ventured to help Mama with the baking, but my cooking was worse than Ray's. By the time I was knee-high, my family learned upwards of a dozen ways to tell me, shoot. Why don't you go play with your toys, honey? I got this, boy. Go help your mama. Tom, stop taking my task. Find your own job to do. So I built a world of my own instead. Beneath the porch, the weeds protected me from the outside as I crawled into the minuscule space between the dirt and the floorboards. If I positioned myself just right, I could stare straight under the base of the house. Raccoons and feral cats resented me for stealing their vacation homes, though I informed them I'd be happy to share. But my new empire veiled its own set of secrets. About once a week, I found pieces of something I couldn't explain. The sickly blue pallor was all wrong for any of the animals or vegetation I saw in our area. Such discoveries proved so curious that after a while, I got in the habit of bringing a bucket with me and collecting the parts to show my sister. On my most auspicious day, the metal pail held what looked to be a tail, two claws, half an ear, and a gnarled paw. I'd say those things were about the size of a fox. I proudly displayed a disembodied limb for scale. The patches of freckles on Ray's cheeks turned a shade redder. Don't let Daddy see these. Why not? Because, she said, he wouldn't like it. She dumped my treasures in the creek, and together we watched as the clear rushing streams carried them away. One afternoon... In my tenth September, when the air sharpened and the year pretended to bow, I finished my day's work under the porch a few hours earlier than usual. Ray helped Daddy in the field, and Mama cooked in the kitchen. Neither pursuit sounded appealing, and I rightly guessed I'd be shooed away anyhow, so I decided I might sit in the Adriandac chair on the porch. No one ever used it, and I worried it suffered from loneliness. Before I got within a foot of consoling that chair, Mama hollered from the window, Get away from there this instant. That thing's filthy. She was right. 
The wood dripped with something brown and sticky. I pressed an index finger into the concoction, and then feared I wouldn't be able to withdraw my hand at all. Whatever it was, the substance acted stronger than glue, though gratefully weaker than cement. After forsaking a patch of skin, I cradled my wound and heeded Mama's warning. At least I hadn't taken a seat after all. I might never have escaped. What's all over the Adriandak chair? A wooden spoon heaped with Mama's lumpy mashed potatoes, suspended in the air as Daddy glanced up from his supper and studied me through eyes darker than any secret our family could ever hide. I thought he might shake off the side dish and wallop me with the spoon, but Ray interrupted first. You ought to tell him, Daddy. The sooner he knows. Don't you tell me my business, girl. Fine, she said and jabbed her meatloaf with a fork just the side of rusted. Go ahead and put this whole family on the chopping block. See if I care. I then became convinced the wooden spoon would go after Ray instead. But Mama held up her hands, and despite his stubborn nature, Daddy acquiesced. That was your granddaddy's favorite chair, he said with no particular inflection. You used to spend evenings in it, back when things were different. You don't sit there, though. Nobody does. I leave that chair in remembrance of him. The words were rehearsed, which alarmed me. For all Daddy's charms, thoughtfulness was not among them. If he contemplated what he was about to say, things were worse than I thought. I didn't ask again. My under-the-porch excursions continued to yield a glut of appendages, but I alone bid them farewell in the creek. The chair rested in expectant silence, and as I hid in bed at night, eavesdropping on the perennial commotion downstairs, I wondered what world my granddaddy knew that was so different it deserved a memorial. On my twelfth birthday, right after Ray burnt another fine slice of white bread, which I ate with a scowl and a grumble, our daddy skulked into the kitchen, heavy and hulking from his field work. Sweat soaked his brow and turned his cheeks to crimson. The sun failed to make its usual debut that spring morning. Boy, it's time we take a ride. I coughed a few black scraps on my plate and trudged after him. The tarnished Ford drove several miles down the twisted road, passing one burnt-out house after another, until the dirt path ended and the truck faltered. On a hill, a dilapidated mansion loomed over us. I gaped at its half-suspended shutters. Where are the people? Daddy tucked a wad of tobacco into his left cheek. They're gone. What happened to them? They're killed. By what? He never replied. We started back towards our house in total quiet, and I hoped the field trip was over, even if it meant I received no explanation. Instead, he stopped at the next domestic shell. After a long pause, he opened the door and strolled toward the front porch. Out of begrudging obedience, I pursued him. Gnawed doors hung from hinges. He gawked at me. More fearsome than last, ain't it, boy? I nodded. We stopped at two more abandoned properties before returning home. I never asked why, and Daddy never offered. While he took his usual afternoon catnap, Mama reviewed our lessons with us. Someday you two will leave here, she said as we learned our multiplication tables. I don't know how, Ray punctuated the statement with a moan. Not with what we have to do. Hush. That evening, Mama nudged me from my sleep. Your father wants you to join us tonight. Join you? 
I steadied myself against my pillow. For what? She departed without another word. For boning in my bowels, I followed. As I reached the bottom of the stairs, Ray passed me a rifle. From a perch near the window, Daddy shook his head. Let's see if you're up to this, boy. He pointed outside, and through a small gap where the weather had chipped away the wooden shutters, I peered into the darkness. A legion of red eyes descended on the house. What is that? As I watched, motionless with agony, the eyes bottlenecked, racing in tandem toward the front door. Then the scratching began, and the gunfire. What's happening? My legs collapsed beneath me, and I pressed both hands to my ears. Those things are after us, Mama whispered as she ran her fingers through my hair. Why? We don't know, she said, but if we can't keep them back, if they get all of us, they'll go on to the next family. I looked up at her. Is that what happened to the other houses? She nodded. But when they got here, they couldn't broach the door. Your granddaddy planned ahead. She motioned to a row of four-inch squares hidden behind the paneling. Glistening barrels fit through the house with enough room to steady the crosshairs. Salt streamed across my lips while Daddy used his Henry rifle to scatter a few beasts closest to the door. The grating on the exterior woodwork ceased for a moment and then commenced again. I groaned. Terrified the hideous noise might deafen me. Daddy huffed once and fired three more staccato shots. I vomited on the floor. Told you one ready. Ray unloaded a gun almost bigger than her. Pulling myself back to the window, I watched the eyes flow to the front door from every direction and remembered overhearing Ray ask about their movement. They don't go around back? Mama shook her head. Though my addition to the shooting gallery was questionable that first night, I did endeavor to see if any of the creatures lacked a tail or an ear, but nightfall hid them better than the meager porch light could hope to cure. All we could glimpse through the room were the eyes desperate to obliterate us. The next morning, precisely at dawn, the creatures departed. With a glint of hellfire temporarily extinguished, Daddy led me onto the porch and pointed at the scuffed door. If the paint's all gone in spring, we ain't working hard enough to dispel them. Thin chips of black littered the ground where the creatures had tried and failed to breach the threshold. Otherwise, no evidence remained of our skirmish. We shot at least a hundred last night, I said. Where are the bodies? They carry off their dead, Daddy said. Your granddaddy always wondered if those beasts knew how to resurrect them. Ray stood in the doorway. Maybe that's what they do all day. What they probably do all day is sleep, Mama shook her head as she swept the driveway, just like we should. Daddy dipped his chin toward his chest and contorted an eyebrow. Then how are we ever going to have any money? We'll figure something out. And with that, Mama broke into her favorite dirge. Like the beasts we battled, our family adopted a pattern, too. Unload bullets on endless repeat, listen to the scratching at the front door, hope we live till morning. We could kill more if we were out there, I said one sweltering August night. We could die quicker, too. Daddy was the best shot, which meant he got the most say, but Ray was learning her way around a firearm, and so was I. We could try to claim the bodies first, I gnashed my back molars. If they do bring them back to life, we could slow them down. 
Then in the morning, we could burn the corpses. Ray's voice quivered and her eyes widened. In her idea of the dubious funeral pyre, we probably roasted marshmallows, too. Nobody goes out there. Daddy brushed a fleck of nothing from the butt end of the blue barrel. But I'm the smallest, I said, and the fastest. He turned to me, jaws set and shoulders wide. Don't make me tell you again, boy. The creatures scratched at the porch boards while Ray muttered, Shucks. As Daddy reloaded his shotgun, a shell slipped from his fingers and rolled under the table. He cursed and dove after it. In his moment of distraction, I looked to Ray, who gave me the slightest nod of consent. In tandem, we eyed the door. Mama saw us, and with her implicit maternal prophecy, knew what we planned. Tom, don't! Before she could reach me, my body propelled forward, and a hand reached the lock. I thrust open the door and stared into the thousand sparks of red glowering at me. The sheer immensity of the devilish battalion caused my legs to bow. One of the creatures darted toward me, but Ray kicked it into the darkness. His shadow blacker than a fresh-painted door, Daddy grabbed my arm from the lock. With a swift motion, he twirled my hand until the elbow cracked and I collapsed to the floor. Then he slammed the door. "'Keep shooting,' he said as I trembled. That following morning, while I crunched my toast, Mama and Ray conspired at the stove. In hopes of hearing their latest scheme, I chewed slower and quieter, but the bread turned to a gelatinous mush and sealed itself to my cheeks. The two of them veiled their voices too well anyhow, and I gleaned nothing and finished breakfast with a frown. "'Come on,' Ray said and grabbed my good arm. I whined and wrapped both feet around a table leg. "'We'll walk to the pond. Walking's good for us.' Walking was no better for us that morning than any other morning. Mama just wanted us to skedaddle so she could admonish our tempestuous patriarch. Their conversation would be far more interesting than any patch of grass or deadfall Ray and I could discover in the woods. But I had no other choice, so I kicked the floor and followed my sister. I smacked the trunk of each tree we passed. The thuds emitted different frequencies, and I fancied myself a newfangled kind of drummer. What do you think those things are? Ray shrugged. Monsters. Demons. It's all the same, really. But where do they come from? Think they live here in the forest? No. Ray swatted at me. We'd have surprised them at some point if they did. Maybe they've got a secret cave or something. No way we'll ever know. My elbow smarted, and I certainly cursed Daddy for what he'd done. There is one way. Ray hesitated. What? Catch one, I said. We returned to the backyard and found our father already working in the field. He grunted at us, and Ray distracted him with some nonsense about a system of groundhog holes. The only thing our family hated more than nocturnal goblins was pesky varmints. As they conversed, using a unique language of hand motions and expletives, I pulled a rusty bucket and a splintered two-by-four from the workshed. Once the old man had retired to bed for the afternoon, Ray and I crept under the porch. With expert care, I positioned the bucket. Is right here good, you think? I studied Ray's eyes. The breeze stirred the dirt, and she nodded. With the lip of the bucket lifted from the ground, I propped the piece of wood underneath it, leaving a six-inch opening through which we'd catch our monster. I don't think this'll work. Ray tugged at her dress and scowled. If they were so easy to capture, we'd have got one in our gutter or something by now. I frowned. Couldn't hurt to leave it up. I guess you're right. We examined our handiwork, pleased with the rudimentary simplicity of it. 
During the evening siege, Ray and I huddled near the picture window, desperate to hear if our trap worked. Mama shifted her gaze between us. What are you two up to? Nothing. Ray tucked her hands behind her. She might as well have confessed. Mama knew Ray's tales better than anyone. Just don't try to go outside again, Mama said and loaded a row of bullets. An abrupt thump shuddered under our porch, and Ray gasped. We turned to each other and tried not to smile. Daddy looked up from his rifle. What was that? I shrugged. I didn't hear nothing. I did. He gazed through a hole in the wall. I think it came from below the porch, Mama said. There's no way into the house through there, Ray said brightly. So nothing to worry about. Anytime those things try something different, it's worth worrying about. Daddy struck the rifle barrel through the nearest opening and fired until the bullets were gone. Then he reloaded and did it again. In the morning, after Mama finished her outdoor routine, Ray grabbed my sleeve and we retreated under the porch. In the evening melee, the stick had shifted and left the bucket flush on the ground. You think there's something under there? I asked. Don't know. Ray flicked the metal with her index finger. We listened for a response. Nothing stirred within. My nose crinkled and I sighed. What a waste. We could try again. Ray smiled. Nah, I said, crossing my arms. It's a stupid idea, anyhow. We should probably return Daddy's bucket, then. He might notice it's missing. I nodded and lifted the pail from the ground. Beneath the makeshift prison, a lithe, one-foot creature with an ashen-blue complexion twitched. My sister and I recoiled in unison. Tom, Ray whispered, we did it. Together, we edged toward the pallid creature. The eyes aren't red, I said. You see that, Ray? They're just pale yellow. Yellow-white, she corrected. Maybe it's because we're seeing it in daylight? Maybe the daylight's killing it. In reverent silence, we sat with the creature all morning. It writhed and cawed in pain. I told Ray we should fetch it some water. Do what you want, she said, but we can't nurse it back to health. It is evil, you know. After scurrying from our hideout, I returned and poured a trickle of creek water into what I assumed to be its mouth, but that just made it thrash more. Around noon, Mama returned with lunch. We situated the bucket to keep the creature from escaping and retreated to the house for grilled cheese sandwiches. You two are in a hurry, Mama said as Ray and I finished and rushed back outside. Under the porch, we removed the pail. The creature was already dead. Shucks, said Ray. Now what? I said. We burn it, I guess. Over the next few weeks, we collected every bucket and stick on the property. Each day after Daddy retired to the bedroom for a nap, Ray and I would sneak behind the work shed and start a small bonfire to eviscerate the cadavers. When we were done, we rearranged the traps. I made chalk tally marks on the underside of the porch board to track our progress. As I inscribed a diagonal line to make 30, Mama peeked through the entrance of our warren. What are you two doing under there? Nothing. I crawled to the front of the opening, a diminutive goblin still in its death throes behind me, and tried to block her way. Ray covered the creature and sat in front of the bucket. With a gentle hand, Mama pushed me to one side and joined us beneath the porch. What do you have? She pointed behind Ray. Nothing, I said quickly. Don't you lie, Tom. Mama looked at my sister. What's under there? Ray sighed and removed the bucket. Mama screamed. Get away from it! She pulled us toward her as we squirmed. Just touching it's liable to kill you. 
Now, Ray said and gripped a nearby stick. See? She poked the creature in its bloated belly. We removed the half-dozen buckets so Mama could examine our cachet of beasts. Is that what you two have been doing, collecting these things? Collecting and burning them, I said. Ray nodded. We just wanted to thin their numbers a little. Not like that, you're not. It's too dangerous. But, Mama... You stop this instant, she said. I will cement up the porch if I have to, or tell your father. We didn't know which prospect scared us worse, so by sundown the buckets were returned to the workshed, and Ray tossed the sticks into the stream. For my part, I stood on the porch, cussing softly under my breath and stifling the tears in my eyes. The nearest I'd ever come to saving my family, and I was forbidden to do it again. Every day around three, Mama persisted in teaching us English and mathematics and world history and whatnot. Why bother? Ray spit on her chalkboard. So you two won't be trapped here like us. Mama said we'd each go to school, one at a time, to ensure the house had enough firepower for the nightly blockade. Two decades' worth of savings from our annual bumper crop would have it no other way. A week before my 18th birthday, Ray inspected me over a charred breakfast. I want you to go to school first. Why me? Because, she said with a shrug, I'm the better shot. Mom and Daddy need me here more than you. Not true, I said. We'll see. That night, my sister and I fired at every creature we saw. Mama kept count of who got what while Daddy grumbled that neither of his progeny had any right to vacate the homestead. Ray beat me by three shots. I majored in biology. When it comes to studying creatures, I figured metal pails were almost akin to Petri dishes. Plus, part of me hoped a textbook might inadvertently reveal the identity of the beast. The optimism was in vain, but then again, most optimism is. Daddy died during my senior year at junior college. After the wake, all the well-meaning town folk offered to stay with Mama, Ray, and me. We rushed him out the door before sundown. A couple of ladies with fright white hair nearly refused to go. We should let people in, they said. Mama told them she'd think about it, and the women left. Their coupe de villes had hardly disappeared around the bend when the red tail lights were replaced with red eyes. The creatures never broke to mourn, so neither could we. I returned home for good. Mama tried to argue, but college hadn't entirely agreed with me anyhow. It's hard to care about what Immanuel Kant postulates about the human condition when all you can think about is your family fighting for their lives and nobody around to help them. The scholars we learned about, Freud, Nietzsche, and Hegel, and Jung, they'd understand why I needed to go home. Or if they didn't understand, they'd still agree with the decision. It didn't take two years before Mama fell ill, too. For her part, Ray refused to leave our matriarch to part the world without a fight. She took her to every specialist within an afternoon's drive, but not one of them could determine the problem. Our Mama bid farewell in the spring, two days shy of my 24th birthday. Ray took her turn at school. She'll graduate next May, with honors, no less. She wants to return home right after, but I sure hope she changes her mind. It would be nice for one of us to escape the property alive. Trucks breach the road now. Drivers drift to and fro, but so far their trips are rare and confined to daylight hours. Some town folks say drilling companies want to buy the abandoned property down the way. If they do, the pipeline workers on the midnight shift will be awfully surprised. I worry about what might happen if a few of the creatures stole away on the tailgate of a truck. But maybe it'll just lighten the evening load. 
As for me, I employ more ammunition every night than the whole family used to fire in a month. The nice fellow at the gun shop suspects I'm up to something less than legitimate. I just tell him I like target practice. Not so far from the truth, anyhow. And unlike my daddy, I sit on that old Adriandac chair. It took a couple of buckets of soapy water to clean off all that dust and grime and guts collected over the battlefield years, but I managed. Now when those beasts descend, the first thing they hear is the creak of the porch boards and that mournful tune Mama taught me. Our family's not retreating anymore. And it turns out, those red eyes look a whole lot duller when you're staring straight at them. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That was Gwendolyn Keist's Black Door, as read by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theater from California State University, and has worked in many theaters, large and small, professional and amateur. He has also worked for Apple Computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, and prepared court documents. He has taught and performed sword fighting for the stage and run lights for local bands until they broke up. As of writing this bio, he has narrated for the Drabblecast and nearly all of the District of Wonder shows. Starship Sofa, right here at 
Tales to Terrify, and the late lamented protecting Project Pulp and Crime City Central. Looking at you, far-fetched fables. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping, stocking the fish in the aquarium, and keeping the house safe from the hordes of invisible monsters that come out after dark. And Morgana, a small fluffy queen who rules her domain with an iron paw. The fish are unimpressed. Thank you, Logan. Our second story for the night comes from Ray Kolb, an assistant district attorney in Alabama. He spent two years in Afghanistan working with Afghan judges, prosecutors, and police officers, training and mentoring each in Afghan criminal law. Ray has had numerous stories published, most recently in the Subterranean Quarterly. Ray blogs way too infrequently at www.raykolb.com. Children of the Night, listen with me to Ray Kolb's Harvest Moon. Until last night, I suppose the scariest thing I ever saw was in the summer of 1977. My little brother Tommy, Greg Bowder, Danny Harbin, or Leadbutt as we called him because he moved so slowly, and I were down by the Black Oak Creek. The creek, so-called because of the fire that raged through these parts a long time ago, my dad said sometime around 1900, wasn't much more than a stream, starting just south of Alberta and never making it to Mifflin, which wasn't more than a mile or two south of Alberta itself. We built the treehouse in an old oak tree east of the creek, pretending we were defending the land from Indians and keeping the creek water safe for the people inside the fort, keeping them safe from the ghosts that were supposed to haunt these woods. There were ghosts, what with people dying in the fire, but we weren't afraid. We were soldiers. Besides, there were four of us, and together we could kick any apparition's butt, especially if we were safe behind the wall of our treehouse. We had regular guards posted at the foot of the tree, between the fort and the creek. The remainder of us soldiers kept the treehouse headquarters in top military shape. As usually happened, we made Tommy stand guard while Greg, Leadbutt, and myself read and debated the newest adventures of Spider-Man and the Avengers. We'd been in the fort for a couple of hours, having read a dozen comics and finished off the pack of ding-dongs Leadbutt filched from his mom's pantry. I guess we dozed off. I remember waking with a start when I heard Tommy screaming. Jumping up, I pushed back the dirt-stained throw rug that passed for a door. I looked down to where Tommy should have been. I can tell you I have never climbed down a tree so fast. Racing down just behind me were Greg and Leadbutt. We called Tommy's name as loud as we could. My heart was beating fast, and not just because my dad would whip my butt for not watching my little brother. I was worried about Tommy, too. To our right, we heard branches and grass crunching under at a furious pace. Turning, we saw Tommy running at full speed. Get in the tree! He screamed, looking over his shoulder. Get in the tree! Without asking permission or even giving the secret password, Tommy pushed by us and flew up the steps into the treehouse. Before I had time to feel relief or get mad at Tommy for breaking the rules, I heard growling coming from where Tommy had appeared from the trees. My mouth dropped and the air in my lungs disappeared. I couldn't scream and I couldn't run. I was looking into the face 
of a werewolf. The monster stood there in the clearing surrounding our little treehouse and growled, shaking its head at me, saliva hurling from its jaws. It walked straight at me. All I could do was stutter-step back to the tree, not daring to take my eyes off the creature for fear it would charge. Charge and then rip me apart. I groped one hand behind me, hoping to grasp some hint of the security, preferably the bottom rung of the tree ladder. When the werewolf was less than two feet from my face and its eyes were locked on mine, I finally found the breath to scream. Unfortunately, I released something else. Before I knew it, piss was running down my left leg. Then I heard laughter. The werewolf stopped howling and started hooting and hollering, pointing at my stained pants. At first, I didn't understand what was going on. Then two older boys, Stu Galler and Adam Reese, popped out from behind a large oak tree. They could barely stand up. They were laughing so hard, holding their sides from the pain. I looked back at the werewolf in time to see Johnny Darcy pulling the mask over his head. Even though he was sweating and gulping for air, he was still grinning from ear to ear. Mama's boy pissed his pants, Johnny said, jabbing a finger at my groin. Fuck you, Johnny, I said before thinking. Then I got the ass-whipping of my life. I can tell you I was plenty scared that day. The most scared I've ever been. Until last night. I was in Jesse's, located just on the outskirts of Alberta, having a smoke and a beer, waiting to meet a friend I'd met at a seminar in Huntsville. I'm an EMT, emergency medical technician, and I've been doing this going on seven years. Some people like to call us ambulance drivers, but don't ever call an EMT that to his face, or he'll kick your teeth in. This friend, I'll call her Sarah, I don't believe she'd like it if I gave her real name after everything that happened. She was coming down to see me for a couple days at the beach. It was the end of September. All the crazy-ass tourists and beach bums had left for the summer, and it was a bit too early for the snowbirds to arrive. The weather would be nice. There was a little summer left, but the fall breeze had just started to set in. As on many occasions, when I found myself burning time at Jesse's, I talked with the regulars. There was Mr. Hollingsworth, crazy old man who swore the South didn't lose the war, and always talked about those goddamned carpetbaggers, and Jimmy Zilger, who lost an arm in Nam and chain-smoked Marlboro menthols. Most days, you could also find a trucker or two, someone pulling a light load that day or taking a couple hours off after pulling a 16-hour haul. Hard-working people who would stop by for a beer or a bite to eat. As the conversation always did this time of year, it turned to the harvest moon. At first, the talk was about the good that came with it, about harvesting and storing so much wheat that the bins were overflowing, about how the wind from the Gulf of Mexico shoots a sweet breeze that, sitting on your screened-in back porch, made the autumn evenings in southern Baldwin County pretty close to heaven. After a few beers, though, the talk turned to the bad. You see, the locals around here know the stories about County Road 127 and what happens if you're fool enough to drive there at night when you see the harvest moon. The first time I ever heard about the harvest moon and what it really means was back in the days of the treehouse. Even though Mom forbade us to go in the woods after dark, sometimes in those 100% humidity evenings when the sun had just gone down, but the temperature seemed to hover around 95 and sweat found every single opening on your body, 
We'd sneak out with a flashlight and a couple of blankets and camp out at a treehouse and tell those stories. That particular night, it was me, Tommy and Greg, and an occasional friend of ours, Eddie Landers. Eddie was one of those weird kids that collected horror stuff, whether it was Fangoria magazines, Halloween masks, or fake blood. And Eddie always had a story. The babysitter who had her arms and legs chopped off so she could only move by dragging herself by her bloodied stumps. The only sound she made, Eddie would whisper, was thump, thump, drag. Or, we've traced the phone call and it's coming from inside your house. On this night, Eddie told a different story. And it sounded different, like Eddie really believed the story. Every year, sometime between dusk and midnight, around the end of September, people knew to stay away from County Road 127. This wasn't hard to do. 127 is a backup road on the way to Gulf Shores. Not a lot of people are familiar with this shortcut, and most who try it end up somewhere way east of where they meant to go. But 127 also cuts just west of Alberta and Mifflin. We figured Eddie was using the Alberta-Mifflin area just to get to us, since our treehouse was less than half a mile from County Road 127. Eddie told us unwary travelers who made the mistake of driving at night on 127, when the harvest moon is shining in its full glory across the Baldwin County sky, ran the serious risk of never making it any further. Many a car was found the next morning, often on its side as if strewn nonchalantly like a discarded toy. Sometimes the roof of the car would be ripped partially off, looking like a sardine can somebody hastily tore the top off of, eager to get to the food inside. Then there was the blood. Over the inside of the windshield, covering the dash, soaking the seats and the floorboards. But even with so much blood and obvious violence at the site, there were never any bodies. Sometimes they'd find a piece or two of flesh torn flesh. Or bloodied stumps, Eddie screamed, sticking a fake handless arm through the sleeve of his jacket. I tell you, he just about gave Tommy a heart attack. Years later, I was able to verify much of what Eddie told us. It seemed like every year around harvest time, I was called to a fatal automobile accident. But there was one thing Eddie had been wrong about. There were bodies at the scene. Not that you would recognize the people they once belonged to anymore. It wasn't the carnage one sees in your average car wreck, though. They were half-empty carcasses with the bowels and vitals gone, much like a lion might do to the insides of an antelope. So word got around, don't drive on County Road 127 during the harvest moon. The regulars pretty much abided by this rule. There were your crazy, drunk teenagers who, every few years, would get stupid and dare each other to drive down 127 during this time. But the other kids got the message when they attended the closed-casket funerals of their dearly departed friends. The official word given to the press and public was the driver was drunk or fell asleep or playing with a stereo and ran off the road smacking into a tree. Since the negligent driver was never wearing a seatbelt, he was naturally thrown from the vehicle. Couldn't really blame the politicians. Wouldn't do much for tourism if there were stories of people dying on a certain stretch of road year after year. Even though Eddie got most of the story straight, it was only several years later during a Halloween party at my high school when I learned the whole story. The party itself was boring, 
but a few of us snuck out of the auditorium and into the science lab. It was eerie, sneaking around in the dark, surrounded by test tubes, wires, and jars filled with animal embryos pickled with formaldehyde. Dickie Hall, dressed as a goofy vampire, was with his girl, Sheila Newton, made up like Lily Munster with streaks of gray in her hair. I was done up pretty good as the devil. Melissa Anderson, the reason I had come along in the first place, was a sexy Cleopatra. We sat on the floor between the waist-high counters topped with Bunsen burners, standing at attention. Dickie pulled a brown paper bag from beneath his cape, producing a six-pack of Black Label beer. After we'd finished the beer, and we were all pretty buzzed, I didn't know about the others, but these were the first beers I'd ever had, Dickie decided we should all tell ghost stories. After a couple of weak attempts by Sheila and me, Dickie took his turn. He told the story of the Harvest Moon, but he didn't stop at what happened on the side of the road. He gave us the history behind the tale. The Great Fire of 1904 wasn't any accident. Seems Alberta had a Don Juan around the turn of the century, a man named John Partlow. His two favorite activities were hanging around the Kaiser, an old tavern shut down for good during the Depression, bragging about his years as a smuggler, for which he always showed a small golden earring as proof, and making time with someone else's woman. Since Partlow was a rather large fellow, getting caught on occasion by a jealous husband usually resulted in an altercation the other guy lost. But this time, Partlow had messed around with the wife of Police Chief Krieger. Krieger, a veteran of the Franco-Prussian War of 1871-72, was one mean son of a bitch who had lost part of his foot in the war. After the war, Krieger returned to the American Gulf Coast and, along with other German immigrants, helped founded the town of Alberta. Because of his military training, Krieger was handed the reins of policing the newly formed municipality. He was a cruel, unforgiving man who terrorized the citizens he was supposed to protect. Krieger's new wife was a good bit younger than the police chief. The marriage, as everyone knew, was a political one. The new Mrs. Krieger was the daughter of the owner of the largest fishery on Wolf Bay. She was as adventurous and unrestrained as her husband was cold and mean. Many a night she could be seen dancing and carousing in one of the two bars at the dirt crossroads that passed for downtown Alberta. Chief Krieger would ride up on his mount, not having police cars then, and whisk her away. Some said to one of the many beatings she would take. It was no surprise to anyone when word spread that Mrs. Krieger and Partlow were riding the skin boat to Tuna Town, as Eddie Sanders would say. Chief Krieger eventually found out after announcing a late working night, Krieger came home a few hours early, and John Partlow got the beating of his life. It was said that Krieger wrapped a chain around his big, strong fist and whipped Partlow from head to foot. One of the blows crushed in the left side of Partlow's face, costing him his left eye and most of the cartilage in his nose. Krieger probably would have killed him, except his wife intervened and became the object of her husband's assault. Partlow with a reprieve, slowly crawled away into the woods. There wasn't much Partlow could do. No one dared cross paths with Krieger, and no one felt sorry for Partlow. Many a husband wondered if he was one of Partlow's cuckolded victims, and relaxed knowing that Partlow would cuckold no more. But Partlow eventually got his revenge. 
A few months later, Krieger's daughter from his first marriage was set to get married. The wedding and the reception to be held at the chief's home, just west of Alberta and Mifflin, not far from where our treehouse would be built. It was during the wedding, held indoors, when Partlow struck. The sun had set behind the trees, making it hard for those inside to see Partlow crouched low within the forest around him. But Partlow could see just fine. The harvest moon was already lighting the night sky. Partlow grabbed a couple of lanterns that were situated around the house in anticipation of the reception outside. After pouring oil from the lanterns on the ground around the home, Partlow pushed the remaining lanterns onto the waiting dry grass. They said at least 50 people died in the fire that day. Practically the whole forest went up in flames, and it took the fire department two days to put the fire out. No one survived, and no one ever saw Partlow again. Some say he died in the fire, and that seems most likely. Others say he suffered a fate much worse. Partlow's soul, blackened with the evil he'd done, was forced to live in the forest he'd destroyed. He was no longer this striking physical specimen he once was. He was a repellent, misshapen monstrosity forced to inhabit the forest, haunted by the ghosts of those he'd killed. It's said that Partlow, or whatever he became, takes physical form only on the harvest moon. From sunset to midnight, Partlow feeds, feeding the blackness. As always, telling stories made time fly. I looked at my watch. It was almost six, just about time for sunset. Sarah was a little late, but that wasn't unusual. On her first date, I almost gave up and left the restaurant when in she walked, frazzled and out of breath, but still looking beautiful. I must have smiled at the memory because Hollingsworth snorted in his gravelly, half-drunk voice. Why you so damn happy, boy? Win the lottery or something? I shook myself out of the daydreaming and shot Hollingsworth a shut-your-trap look. I smiled and said, just waiting for my lady friend. Where the hell is she, boy? Hollingsworth snorted again. Stand you up? She'll be here, I said, nodding my head convincingly. She was a little late, but I wasn't worried. Besides, I could just call her cell phone. I don't know if you call it ESP or what, but my phone started ringing. I must have jumped half off the barstool. Hollingsworth started laughing. All I know is it scared me. I can't explain it. After all, I wasn't expecting her to call, but I knew it was her, and I felt it was bad. I kept telling myself, Don't be stupid. You've been talking about Harvest Moon, and you've just spooked yourself. Hello, I answered in a whisper. JB? It was Sarah. Is that you? I swallowed hard. Yeah, it's me, Sarah. You sound kind of funny. Just a little worried about you, that's all. Well, you must be psychic, she said, laughing. Luckily, I'm dating an ambient, um, EMT. What's wrong? Oh, I think my car blew a rod or something. The engine's smoking. I closed my eyes and shook my head, though I knew she couldn't see me. I called information to get a tow truck, she continued. But they're all busy. Isn't that weird? Where are you? I didn't even want to hear the next part, already knowing the answer. Some backcountry road, she said. 127, I think. Might have missed my turn. Did you pass over a creek yet? I asked, hoping she'd say no. 
Yes. Was there a big oak tree, half-burned, black? Yes, she said. It was odd-looking. I didn't say anything for a moment. I sucked in a deep, long breath. I had to think. Okay, it's not quite six o'clock. I'm less than five minutes from where she is, less than two miles from the old treehouse. I want you to stay in the car, I said, getting off the bar stool and heading for the door. Lock the doors. Do you have a gun? JP, you're scaring me. I'll explain later, I said, my voice rising. Just do it, please. Well, all right, she said, but JP, I... The phone went dead. Normally, I would have chalked it up to shitty coverage, but as you can imagine, I was pretty worked up when it happened. I sprinted to my truck, thanking God I was too lazy to lock the damn thing. I moved a can of WD-40 on the seat. I didn't fumble my keys too badly, and soon I was on my way, on 98, heading to County Road 127. It was getting dark, but I refused to turn the lights on. I got to the turnoff for 127 without much trouble, and took the turn almost at full speed the tires screeching as the truck fishtailed. I still had almost a mile to go before I passed the half-burned oak tree where Sarah would be. I cursed as I finally turned on the headlights. I had the truck almost to 60, and it was still climbing. Perhaps five seconds later, something in the side-view mirror caught my eye. It was hard to tell with no streetlights on a small country road, but something was moving up behind me and moving fast. Before I realized what happened, it was running beside me. What I saw scared the hell out of me. It was almost as black as the night itself. Its hair, covering its entire body, was long and sleek, flowing a foot behind. Its head was the shape of a wolf's with a very short snout. Its lips were pulled back from the force of running, showing teeth like a lion's, and its body was half-human, half-animal, built for power and speed. Some might say I was describing a werewolf, but it didn't look like any werewolf I'd ever seen, whether in the movies or that day back at the treehouse. This was more than just wolf and man. It was part demon. And when it turned its head at me and smiled, it was all demon. In the brief moment when the demon and I were looking eye to eye, I took in a million things about the creature. The left side of its face was partially caved in and had no left eye only a sunken black cavity. In its ear was a small golden loop. For an instant, I saw recognition in the beast's face and a momentary loss of the evil spewing from its being. I knew it was Partlow, or whatever was left of Partlow. The demon's face reignited with fury, and it swung its huge paw at me. I swerved sharply to the right, almost too late in slamming on the brakes. My truck lifted up on two wheels, and I thought I was going to flip. I don't know if God was with me, I know the devil was, but somehow I managed to right the truck. I gunned the gas pedal. Before I had time to figure out where I was, it was beside me again. Its paw shot at me, fast, so fast I could only partially get out of the way. It hit me so hard that I lost my grip of the steering wheel and found my head lying on the front seat of the truck, banging into the can of WD-40. It felt like someone had slapped me on the side of my head with a shovel. Black crept into my vision and a strong ring sang in my ears. I tried to sit up. I could feel the truck running off the side of the road. At any moment, I expected it to crash head-on into a tree. Instead, the truck skidded, gradually turning sideways. It did smash into a tree, but most of the force was gone. I lay there, shaking like a baby pulled out of a cold bath. 
I might have stayed there too, my knees curled to my chest, my arms wrapped tightly around my legs, if the beast hadn't punched a hole through the roof. I screamed and kicked wildly, trying to fight it off as it reached for me. A searing burn ripped across my leg. I wasn't going to last much longer like this. I tried to back up against the far door, my hand landing on something as I pushed up. It was a can of WD-40 again. I grabbed the can, screaming at it. The can seemed intent on doing everything it could to get in my way. I was about to throw the can at the monster, now standing on the hood of my truck, howling at the top of its lungs and reaching for me, when desperation hit me. I reached into my jeans pocket while trying to dodge a gut-piercing shot from the creature's right claw and pulled out my cigarette lighter. I sprayed the can of WD-40 at the demon's face and flicked the cigarette lighter into the spray. The force of the blast damn near burned my hand off, but I sure as hell wasn't letting go. The fierceness of the fire and the heat spewing from it forced me to turn my head, tucking it into the seat of the truck. I had no way of knowing if the flame was having any effect. I heard an awful, piercing howl, like the sound of a dog already sick with mange being caught in a bear trap, screaming for its life. A moment later, I felt the truck shake, first down, then up. I knew the demon had jumped off the hood. I only hoped it wasn't trying to come after me another way. Reluctantly, and only because all the hair on my hand burned off, I stopped spraying the WD-40 and let go of the lighter. I didn't want to, I really didn't want to, but slowly I raised my head to see above the dash. All was quiet, and I felt a moment of relief. I breathed a sigh and then sucked in a serious amount of air. It looked like I'd actually fought the thing off. Then I heard Sarah scream. I sat up quickly and turned the ignition. A grating sound of gears sent a chill down my neck, but the truck was still running. It took me a few seconds to get the truck away from the tree it had bent itself around. Looking through the gaping hole in the top of my truck, I could see the harvest moon, now arisen in its full glory. All kinds of horrible images kept running through my mind, thinking about what the creature was doing to Sarah. Perhaps fifteen seconds later, I saw Sarah's car, a new model luxury car. At least it used to be. Standing on top of the car was the beast, proceeding to do to the roof of Sarah's car what it had done to my truck. I punched the horn and flicked my brights on and off, trying to get the demon's attention. That I did. It jumped off Sarah's car and ran straight at me. I licked my lips and wondered what the hell I was doing. As it neared me, I could see the damage the WD-40 flame had done. Some of the hair on its face was burned off and it was bleeding too, but other than a small limp, it didn't seem much different than before, except a lot more pissed. The demon looked ready to jump, so I gunned the truck to catch it off balance. As I neared, it leapt, and I involuntarily ducked my head. The top of the truck caught the beast from the knees down, spinning the truck through a series of 360s. By the time I stopped, upright but sideways in the road, I was dizzy and trying not to throw up. I didn't see what happened to the beast. I held my head in my hands and moaned from the motion sickness. My door flew open and I screamed, trying to jump for the passenger side door. JB, it's me, Sarah. I looked at Sarah, grabbing my chest to control my heart. Sarah. Brief but intense, we embraced. I pushed her back. She looked scared, for sure, but otherwise in pretty good shape. Where did it go? I asked, looking around. Into the woods, 
she said, pointing. I knew the area well, the direction of my old treehouse. Okay, I said, getting out of the truck and pushing Sarah politely, but firmly, out of my way. I'm going after it. Are you crazy? Maybe, I said. I dug through the junk in the back of my truck. I think I heard it. Bad. Great, Sarah said, grabbing my arm. So let's get the hell out of here while we can. I stopped and looked at her. I wasn't sure why I was going after it, but I was. Maybe it was the years of looking at the dead bodies every harvest moon. Maybe it was because this creature finally went after someone I personally cared for. Or maybe, deep down inside, the creature and I weren't that much different. I had heard it and smelled blood. Now I was going to kill it. Maybe all of the above. I found what I was looking for, a spare can of WD-40, Havoline motor oil, and a tire iron. I tore off what was left of my shirt and wrapped it around one end of the tire iron. I took the can of WD-40 I'd used earlier and doused the shirt. I didn't have a pocket knife or a can opener, so I used the sharp end of the tire iron to open the can of Havoline, managing to spill only about a third. It would have to do. I tried to give Sarah a hero's kiss goodbye, since it happened that way in the movies, but she pulled away. You're going to get yourself killed, she said, and then that damn thing is going to come back for me. I had to admit she had a point, but it was too late. Something inside me had crossed a threshold. Keys are in the truck, I said. You can take it back. Without looking at Sarah, I headed into the woods, limping from the gashes in my leg. I didn't need a flashlight. The harvest moon lit my path. I headed for the old treehouse. I'm not sure why. Something, instinct or intuition, told me Partlow was going there. I didn't bother to look from side to side, which seems stupid now. The beast could have jumped from behind any of the oaks I passed. Then again, it could have stood in the path, and I'm not sure I would have had time to use anything I brought with me. I came into the clearing. Just beyond the ancient oak cradling my old treehouse, it seemed to get darker. I looked up in the sky, but the trees around shielded the harvest moon. Suddenly, my crazy thoughts of killing the beast seemed just that. Crazy. I thought of turning around, getting out of there. I took a couple of steps back. Do it. I nearly jumped out of my skin. I spun around quickly. It was Sarah. Kill it. I nodded. I took a deep breath and covered the few paces to the foot of the treehouse. I noticed with little amusement the decaying one-by-fours hammered to the side of the tree. I noticed the splotches of blood, too. With the tire iron under my left arm and the can of oil and cigarette lighter in my left hand, I started up the boards. It was slow going with one free hand and a hurt leg, but I covered the half-dozen boards fast enough. As I reached the top board, I stopped. I could hear breathing, heavy, labored breathing inside the treehouse. I closed my eyes, shook my head. I got dizzy. I thought I was going to pass out. This was, without a doubt, the stupidest thing I had ever done, even more so than telling Johnny Darcy to fuck off. I had to lay the tire iron and can of oil on the floor of the treehouse. I had no doubt the beast could easily reach out and snatch them if it wished, but the creature hadn't come forward yet. I pulled myself up into the treehouse. The treehouse is no more than six feet by six feet and no taller than five feet. I squatted at the entrance. 
I could see a huge black blob in the far corner. It was more than two or three feet from me. I could not only hear its breathing, I could feel it. It was hot, fetid breath. It stank of oldness and death. I stood up as much as I could, the tire iron in my right hand, the cigarette lighter in my left. I lit the soaked shirt and had to stand back as the flames shot up and out. The creature howled and started to shuffle. I tensed, waiting for it to spring at me. As the flames calmed, I could see the beast had shoved itself further in the corner. The burned half of its face was blistering, and its only eye winced from the bright flame. Its arms were down around its legs, its paws caressing the gaping cuts. For the second time, the beast and I stared at each other. Gone was the fury and evil I'd seen there. Its eye, now surrounded by charred flesh, showed pain, resignation, relief. I snapped myself from its gaze, hurriedly splattering the remains of the javeline over as much of the treehouse as I could. My hand was shaking. I probably got more of it on me than on the wood. When the can was empty, I took one final look at the beast. I wavered. The rage and anger I'd fostered left me. All I saw was a helpless, wounded animal cowering in fear from what it perceived as its imminent death. There was acceptance in its eyes, too. Looking back on what happened next, I can only conclude the beast or whatever was left of Partlow sensed I was changing my mind. The beast swelled near its full capacity, crouching angrily inside the treehouse. I saw it ready to pounce, and I found my nerve. At the same time, I threw the torch. I jumped out the doorway. The explosion hit me full in the back and knocked me straight down. I flailed my arms, trying to break my fall. I landed in the creek. It was a hard landing, and I think I sprained my ankle, but I smiled as I flopped over on my back, letting water rush over me, cooling my aching body. As I lay there, looking up at the treehouse, completely consumed in flames, I heard the beast howling again in that horrible wail, resonating against the surrounding oak trees. My smile faded. I heard soft footsteps in the water. I turned slightly and welcomed the sight of Sarah, cradling her arms around her waist, tears of relief on her cheeks. That was last night. Tonight, I'm back in Jesse's after spending the rest of the night in the hospital. The doctors wanted to keep me longer, but I figured if what I'd just been through couldn't kill me, I could live through whatever Jesse might be able to do. Sarah headed back to North Alabama. Can't say I blame her. I suspect I won't be seeing much of her anymore. Having told this story to those who are around me, the faces of the people are frozen in attention. With nothing left to say, the crowd breaks up. I imagine the debate is already on. Is he telling the truth or just pulling a good one on everybody? I turn back to the bar to finish my beer before heading home. I feel a tap on my arm. It's a young boy, can't be more than 12. He is in his baseball uniform, and I guess he's eating supper with his family after the game. Mister, he says politely, my friends and I were wondering if you could tell us the story again. That was Ray Kolb's Harvest Moon, as read by Matthew Staten. Matthew Staten lives in Chicago and spends his time recording and mixing bands, playing guitar in his own band, and arguing with Rancid the Cat. 
he would love to narrate books or podcasts for you, contact him at myvoiceinmyhead at gmail.com. Link will be in the show notes. And thank you, Matthew. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below. And don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast. Our show is produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you have no idea where it's going? Well, I know it's all of those subscriptions. I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on and I had them cancel the ones I didn't want anymore. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash pod24. That's rocketmoney.com slash pod24. rocketmoney.com slash pod24.